0: Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please join me in reading the call to worship responsibly that will be on the screen. Maybe. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. And when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You, my going out and my down. you are
1: with all my
0: You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.
2: to see you here this morning. Why don't you take a minute and greet each other before you sit down. as I said, it's good to have you here this morning. Uh, Yesterday, in the life of our church, we had the first ever Amazing Grace Road Rally. I think you're going to see a picture or two of that. And we spent uh, some time running all over the county, well not all over the county, but around this area, seeing some sites uh, that uh, we don't maybe normally see and doing some uh, fun things. We were on some roads that we you know, some of us didn't know existed before, and some of those roads probably shouldn't exist, frankly. Um, but we saw some some really fun country, and ended up with, uh, uh, yeah, that one. I didn't know that place existed there. So, just a really fun time together as a as a church family, and we ended up with some Addie's ice cream and refreshments uh, yesterday afternoon in the uh, community room. So, an excellent time to be together. I look forward to that experience again sometime in the future. So, anyway, uh, that was the road rally. Also, in your bulletin, you'll notice that Pastor Wes and Cindy are still on vacation this week. Please be in prayer for them that they have a refreshing time. They come back revitalized and that the Lord will bless them during this time. Uh, Refresh Family Camp begins next week, Sunday evening up on the college. You can find a schedule of activities there. Uh, and the link there shown in the bulletin. And let's remember to pray for Joel and Barb Trudell, who are serving as missionaries in Kenya. And as you know, Kenya is in significant unrest uh, at this time. And so we need to be in prayer for them as they travel around the country doing the work that God has called them to there. Thank you.
0: Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together.
1: Come set your rule and reign in a...
0: let this. Our Old Testament scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19. Jacob's dream at Bethel. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 19. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz like to invite you to stand as we sing the doxology and the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings.
3: See God will be with them.
4: beginning and the end. It's the Son of God, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's everything. Inside. And in the Trinity, he is the Alpha.
2: beginning and the end, the Messiah, to go before him in prayer. It's a great privilege, and uh, I invite you to join me in that. If you would like to, you can join me here at the altar, and we'll pray. Let's pray together. God, you are awesome, and we come today to declare that you alone are God. There is none like you in all the earth. The heavens and the earth are full of your glory, and we offer to you prayers of worship and adoration and thanksgiving. We also come to you, Lord, with those things in our lives that weigh heavily upon us. That area or that habit, that sin with which we struggle and cannot overcome. We bring it before you once again today. And we ask, Father, that you will release us and heal us. Father, there are many in our community who are in need. Those suffering grief and pain, heartache, insecurity and worry. Those who deal with illness and failure and loss. And in this moment, Father, hear us as we lift the names of our friends and our neighbors and others that we know and place them in your care. Father, you love this world that you have created far more than we are able to. And you love every person in this world without exception. And we struggle sometimes to make sense out of a world that appears to be drifting away from you, further into sin and corruption, toward violence and apathy, loneliness and despair. Hear us, Lord, as we pray for our world. we also lift up to you those that have been called out from among us to minister in other parts of the world. We think specifically of Joel and Barb Trudel in Nairobi, of the, of the Kamakui Wesleyan Hospital in Sierra Leone, and of the Dodies in Thailand. Father, we're grateful for their service, and we lift them up to you and ask that you would bless them. Please protect them, Lord, and encourage them and provide for them. May they be very aware of your presence with them in each moment. And Lord, we also lift up to you our brothers and sisters under persecution in Sri Lanka. We hold up before you uh, the pastor and his family who were recently attacked and injured in their home because of their faith in you. Lord, we pray for their healing. We pray that you would bless and encourage them and many others in Sri Lanka who face these kinds of ordeals. May each one be very aware also of your presence with them, your sustaining presence. Lord, give them strength and give them peace. We thank you, Father, for hearing us. Give us courage and patience to trust you for every answer in your way and in your time. We pray these things, Lord, through the wonderful and glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Our New Testament reading is found in John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Following the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for children's church. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: There is a higher throne.
5: Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> About 10 days ago, maybe two weeks, I had a dream. I was standing right here in the pulpit of Houghton Church. I was going to preach this particular sermon. But there were two very odd circumstances. Number one, Pope Francis was sitting in the second row, <laughs> full papal vestments, mitre, everything. And secondly, I was totally unprepared. I did not have a clue what I was trying to say. I have to admit, the pontiff was being very kind about this. He was smiling at me, encouraged me, doing this. (laughs) I didn't know this was a liturgical gesture. I will leave it to the psychologist here, trained or untrained, to determine the pathologies at work in my subconscious about that dream. Our text in Genesis 28 this morning is about a man who was also clueless until he had a dream. I'd like to begin by sharing with you something that I uh, read virtually every semester to my mostly sophomore level Introduction to Christianity class at Houghton Jim unwrapped his bedroll holding all of his worldly wealth there was a hat and some fruit, a pair of socks a rabbit's foot and a book would you bring a book for asked Huck with a little irritation I read said Jim rolling up the blanket again what else a book good for Didn't think you could read, Huck said, and then wished he hadn't. I can read, Jim said with great seriousness, looking out into the night. What kind of book is it, Huck asked. Book about theology, Jim said, his voice trailing away. Theology? I hate theology almost as much as I hate schools. It rules, Huck said, and emphasized the point by spitting into the river. What good is a theology book on a trip like this? Jim was silent for a long time before he answered. trip like this is long. A lot of things going to happen. Might come in handy. The journey is long. Stuff happens. A little theology might come in handy. Now, I read this fictional paragraph to my students each year as a way of introducing to them why I think theology is so important. I don't know how many of my sophomores get it. Some do. Some clearly don't. Many of them just write it down because they think it might be on the test. (laughs) They're young and healthy and their lives are ahead of them. And so I suppose it's forgivable that they do not fully grasp why I think theology is so important. I have to admit sometimes I wonder if that's not just further evidence of the fact that higher education is a terrible thing to waste on 20-year-olds. But what's our alternative? So how about you? You think theology is a waste? Today I'm looking over a large group of fellow travelers, pilgrims, sojourners. And I suspect that I'm looking at more than a few of you who, given the mysterious twists and turns of your travels, have found that, yes, a little theology does come in handy. Because stuff happens. And the necessary starting point for us theologically has to do with our understanding of who God is and how he operates in this world. It all begins there, necessarily. A.W. Tozer said that, I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect or ignoble thoughts about God. My years as a pastor would second those words without hesitation. Mark it down. Bad theology inevitably leads to bad living. William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, insisted that if our concept of God is wrong, the more religious we get, the more dangerous we become to ourselves and to others. Read the Sunday paper if you don't think he was on to something. Good theology has a purpose. With that in mind, let's consider our protagonist here in this story in Genesis 28. Jacob finds himself somewhat of an accidental tourist. He is on a hurriedly planned journey, having swindled his twin brother out of what was rightfully his. And as you might expect, Esau the brother is in no mood to forgive. So Jacob heads off to a faraway place to find himself an acceptable wife and to make a new start. To be perfectly blunt, at this point, Jacob is not a very likable person. He's a conniving, deceitful mama's boy who can dish it out, but he cannot take it. And so he's off to find his fortune elsewhere. What I find most interesting about Jacob is how contemporary he is. He is, at this point, particular point in his life i think perhaps the most secular man in the old testament he is a self-made i gotta make it happen the lord helps them that helps themselves sort of guy he knows what he wants in life and he doesn't let anybody get in his way the problem with esau has thrown a bit of a monkey wrench into his plans so off he goes Theologically, at this point, I think that Jacob is something of a deist. He believes that there's a God, but he's out there somewhere in the distance, and he's not really involved in life, and frankly, is not all that relevant. In short, Jacob is a typically good American. He runs out of daylight, and so he stops for the night in an unknown place, It's easy for us to imagine that this was probably some low moment in this young man's life. Forced to flee from his home, he has no protection. For all practical purposes, he's a fugitive now. Outside the protection of conventional meetings and social guarantees, he lays himself down to sleep using a stone for a pillow. And for the first moment in his anxious journey, Jacob releases control. And he surrenders himself to the human necessity of sleep. And in that moment of release, God shows up. Jacob is not alone after all. How fitting it is for a person who prides himself on being in control that God comes to Jacob in a dream. In sleep, he is not in control, but completely vulnerable. What happens here is completely at the behest of God who retains the initiative throughout. And so Jacob dreams. There is a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God are moving up and down on it. This strange tableau is followed By words from God himself, in which Jacob is assured of God's presence in his life and his part in the family covenant. Jacob awakes, literally and theologically, with the assertion, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is an awesome place. This is the very house of God, the gate of heaven itself. And so he takes his pillow stone, sets it up as an altar, pours oil on it, and calls the name of that place Bethel. Literally, God's house. It's a wonderfully intriguing story. Derek Kidner says it calls it a supreme display of divine grace, unsought and unstinted. Unsought because Jacob was no prodigal. And yet God goes out to meet him, unstinted because there is no word of demand here from God, only a stream of, of assurances. I'd like to suggest this morning that this colorful little story has much to say, not only to Jacob, but to all of us sojourners who are faced with these, this very unpredictable journey of life. And I'd like to try to get at that by focusing in on three elements of this story. First, the stairway. Despite my sermon title, this is not so much a stairway to heaven as it is a stairway from heaven. We see here that there is traffic between heaven and earth. Earth is not left alone to its own resources. And heaven is not some remote self-contained realm for the gods no heaven has to do with earth it is an important and crucial distinction a stairway to heaven reinforces i think the that the real point of salvation is to get us out of this place up into some celestial playground where there are no potholes or toothaches or IRS agents to bother us. But that misreads the biblical truth that God has come to dwell with us, to be with us whatever the circumstances. This is not a dream of escapism. It is a sound theological vision of how things really are. That old spiritual about climbing Jacob's ladder may be inspiring, but exegetically, it's just wrong. We do not climb Jacob's ladder. The reality is is that God's presence is here with us. Angels ascending and descending mean to show us that the kingdom of God is at work. God comes. He shows up where he is not anticipated. Unlike some of the great world religions, in the Bible, heaven and earth are not all of the same stuff. Reality is not essentially one. But neither are they separated by a great gulf. Instead, biblically, heaven and earth overlap. They interlock in a number of different ways. That's what this stairway is telling us. N.T. Wright says that the Old Testament insists that God belongs in heaven and we belong on earth. And that was a part of the, the point behind the story of the Tower of Babel. Where human beings tried in their own strength to assault the gates of heaven. But at the same time, Wright contends, the Old Testament shows us over and over again that these two spheres do indeed overlap. That God makes his presence known and seen and heard within the sphere of earth. This overlap, this connection, this stairway as we see here is the subplot of many Old Testament stories. God is present in our world. Wright suggests that this is why the last half of the book of Exodus is taken up with instructions on how to build a really really special tent. A tent of meeting, if you will. It is a place where heaven and earth come together so that God makes his presence known. And the Jerusalem temple, of course, will become the ultimate example of this for Old Testament Israel. Jacob awakens to the fact that God is not some aloof, distant divine force. but Rather, he is present and active in our world. The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, I suspect that many of us sitting here have had Bethels in our lives. Places where God unexpectedly showed up. And we became aware of his presence in special ways. The Irish call them thin places. Places where heaven and earth meet. You got any of those in your life? But in asking that question, I risk missing a further vital focus in this text. There is something in human nature that risks turning these places of divine encounter into sacred cows. That's precisely what happened eventually with Israel and the temple. Jacob's encounter here with God is not an indication that he has finally found the sacred sweet spot of spirituality, even though he sacralizes the place and calls it Bethel. Yes, Jacob sets up a memorial and it becomes a meaningful place in his life. It is a very predictable human response. We build many altars during our lives. Most of us have done that. There's a hillside up next to Lyndall and Ruth Hutton's house where I sat on a Sunday in August back in 1982 when I candidated here to become the pastor at Houghton. And I saw the stairway from heaven that day. I have erected many Bethels in my life. Our dreams can become memorials. Our pillows can become altars. There's nothing wrong with that unless it blinds us to the greater truth of God's presence throughout our world. If this just becomes another Babel-like attempt to find heaven's gate, then the greater truth about God and his presence in the world will be lost. This story means to suggest that our world is a place of meeting like this. It's significant that when the text says that when Jacob reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. That's a polite way of saying he's in the middle of nowhere. This was not an off-ramp with a Holiday Inn Express and a Denny's. This nameless place... However, becomes a decisive place, not owing to geography but to the reality of god 's presence in his world, and Jacob relinquishing control, however momentarily to be able to see it this This encounter occurs in a place that where Jacob never expected a religious experience it 's not even a place whose name is known. Until this encounter. Significantly, this event happens between places. Where nothing is expected. This non-place is transformed by the coming of God into a crucial place. Yes, God was in this place. And Jacob did not know it. But that was on Jacob. Not on God. We read earlier Psalm 139, which teaches us that limiting God's presence in his world betrays a faulty understanding of his nature and power. To use the textual analogy here, it's all Bethel. It's all the house of God. Where can I go from your presence? Where indeed? Now, if Jacob were like a lot of people, he'd have hauled that stone he uses for a pillow around the rest of his life. It would have become a kind of talisman. Used to summon God whenever God was needed. And Jacob would have completely missed the point of this theophany. It's not about us finding holy places. It's about us learning to see God's presence wherever we happen to be. Isn't it it the truth that so often it's those in-between places where our expectations are low to non-existent, where God suddenly shows up? Jacob has a dream in the middle of nowhere. Moses turns aside to see a burning bush. Two crestfallen, discouraged disciples suddenly encounter a stranger with them on the road to Emmaus. Saul, the feared persecutor of Christians, runs into God on his way to Damascus. You better not disregard those in-between places, because God is there waiting to be found. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Let's stop apologizing for Houghton being in the middle of nowhere. For one thing, it's it's insulting to the good people of Allegheny County. Secondly, it's just patently unbiblical. According to Psalm 139, there's no such place as nowhere. Because with God's presence, it's all somewhere. Somewhere. It's all Bethel. We need to start doing our geography like informed Christians and stop doing it like Orange County real estate brokers. Thus endeth the editorial. (laughs) Finally, I'd like to focus briefly on God and his words here to Jacob. I remind my preaching students of this often, that it is God... And not human beings who is always the, the star of the Bible. God, not Jacob, is the star of this story. That God shows up at all to comfort a rather treacherous person frankly surprises us. I mean, if anyone deserved to be left alone in a sort of forced time out, it was Jacob. Jacob it would be reasonable to think that God would just let him sit out there and stew for a while and think about what he's done to get himself in such a predicament. Walter Brueggemann is right. He says that the real miracle in this story is the way in which the sovereign God binds himself to this treacherous fugitive. And it reminds us that none of us get the presence of God deservedly. It is completely an act of grace on the part of God that any of us should ever become aware of his presence in our lives. None of us hold the high ground over this scoundrel named Jacob. We are of the same cloth. It is solely owing to God's love for us that any of us have a clue about who God is and what that means for our lives. So while the appearance of the stairway fascinates us, it is the speech of God which changes things for Jacob. And notice here that the Lord's speech is all in the way of a promise. Brueggemann says that this story expresses God's intrusion into human reality, which redefines everything. Jacob came to this deserted place fleeing for his life, Undoubtedly without promise, he departs from this encounter changed by the only thing that can change, a word which makes available an alternative future. And please note the particulars of this life-changing word. It is an invitation to Jacob to be part of the story of his own family. Think about that for a moment. This rascal's just torn his family apart. And now he is invited to rejoin it to fulfill God's purposes. This is not a story about Jacob finding God. It is not about Jacob asking God into his life in some sort of modern individualistic way. It is about Jacob taking his place in God's story. A story that involves God's chosen family, Jacob's family, in order to bless the world. Jacob is invited to be part of that story, not the story of his own self-sufficiency. God is doing something in the world, and Jacob is invited to join it. This isn't, God loves you, Jacob, and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, It's, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac, and what I started with them, I can continue in you. And you need to be part of this story. So here we have it. This non-person, exiled, threatened, is transformed by the coming of God into a person crucial for the promise of the covenant. Whereas Jacob stole Esau's blessing, now he will become part of God's plan to bless everyone, including thieves like Jacob. I think this is a, a reminder to all of us moderns that salvation, as we use the term, is not so much about us asking God into our lives. But it's about us joining God in what he is doing through his chosen people. And for those of us on this side of Pentecost, that means his church. God in his grace comes to us, all of us, the good, the bad, the morally ugly, and graciously invites us to join his family to become part of what he is doing in our world. I think this is why it is so fitting that Jesus employs the figure of the stairway. This means of access between heaven and earth as a vivid foretaste of himself as the way to God. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we are shown how the incarnation of Christ is the ultimate example of heaven come to earth. Emmanuel, god with us how fitting it is that the last words jesus speaks to his church in matthew echo psalm 139 i am with you always we're not alone people we're not out there clueless we live as it were in a god saturated world Now, often we will need to relinquish control in order to see it. And there's the rub. But the promise stands that when we seek him with our whole hearts, we will find him. Turns out a little theology might just come in handy. Because none of us knows what lies ahead on the journey. And it just could be in that in-between place where you least expect it, that God could show up. I submitted the title for this sermon a few weeks ago. And the title, Stairway to Heaven, for those of you who know me very well, betrays my longtime fondness for using iconic cultural phrases as sermon titles. I suppose I might as well confess that it also betrays my fondness for Led Zeppelin. (laughs) But as I worked with this text, it occurred to me that a better title would have been to take that old Francis Schaeffer book, The God Who Is There. Then I looked at Psalm 139 and said, well, we'd have to edit it a little bit. We'd have to change it to The God Who Is There and There. And there, and there, and, well, you get it. Elizabeth Barrett Browning got it right. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush, a fire with God. But only he who sees it takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck Blackberries. Surely, the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. Let's pray. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 65. This is my father's world.